0: The power of Shakil only is not only does he find value in businesses which nobody else does, the point is as soon as he touches a business, that also automatically generates values which other businesses won't have. So it's a mix of his acumen and his ability to make businesses bigger.
1: This week, we are brought to you by Attest. Attest is a consumer research platform that enables brands to make customer understanding a competitive advantage with continuous insights. By combining unparalleled speed and data quality with on-demand research guidance, the platform makes it simple and fast to uncover opportunities with consumer data and grow without guesswork. Hello, and welcome to the shiny new object podcast. My name is Tom Ollerton. I'm the founder of Automated Creative. And this is a weekly podcast where I interview the industry's leaders about their vision for the future of marketing. And this week is no different. I want to call with Pranay Rao, who is global marketing Workstream lead at Unilever. Pranay, for anyone who doesn't know you, can you give the audience a bit of background? Hi, Tom.
0: Uh, so I've been in marketing for about 17 years now. And I've been across FMCG primarily, but I've done everything from apparel to health and fitness, etc. Uh, I'm a marketeer who started his life as a, a web designer and a computer engineer. And at some point realized that without marketing, you really can't do much. Uh, and that's how I got into this field. I enjoy creating new products, new innovations, and that's been my uh, thing. Uh, and that's it. That's all for me.
1: And can you help me understand the jobs? Who have you, who have you worked for in that time? What, what have your roles been?
0: So I've worked uh, for Kraft Heinz. i worked for GlaxoSmithKline. i worked for Kimberly Clark. So I've done brands like uh, Huggies, uh, Complan, which is a big brand in India. Uh, I've also worked for Apparel. Uh, there's a company called House of Manita Roadway. And here I was the CMO for, uh, for many brands, actually. I've also consulted on many companies, uh, most recently, I also worked on an NGO called PP Needed, where we really worked during COVID times to get PP to the right people. So, been across industries and across uh, companies per se.
1: And help me understand the role of a, a, a marketing workstream lead. You're definitely our first workstream lead uh, that we've had on the podcast. So, how does that role sit within the marketing function overall?
0: Yeah, so this is more to do with uh, helping set up a company. Uh, so, what Unilever is doing is uh, there's Ekaterra, which is the Unilever T business, which is being set up as a separate company. So one of the things that needs to be done is we need to do a fit-to-size or right-fit-size marketing solution, uh, which means redoing the entire marketing infrastructure, systems, processes, ways of working. Uh, So that's primarily what I'm doing right now. Uh, So this, in fact, is a huge project where we work across uh, different functions uh, and are supported by PwC, Bain. Uh, now, ENY, uh, multiple consultants. And the idea of it is in uh, two to three years, we set up a company which is ready to uh, operate on its own. Uh, and this is done once in a while for every company, whenever you do a s- separation or uh, an MA kind of work. So that's what uh, the role is all about.
1: So it's fair to say that you do need a, a good grasp on the future of marketing so you can set this business up in the right way.
0: Absolutely. So, one of the biggest things we learn is there's so much legacy in companies. So like in Unilever, uh, Unilever is not just one single company. It's probably 100 companies who operate together as a single entity, right? So there have been systems which have been uh, created probably 15 years back. There are some systems which have been created 15 days back and they all need to work together. Now, the benefit you get when you set up a new company is you can completely disregard all that was done in the past. Make sure you take the learnings because obviously Unilever is a brilliant marketing company. But you then set up it in such a way that you have minimum overheads And you have products which are more SaaS, less customization, uh, something which is easily doable and off the shelf uh, and yet light so that you don't have the overheads that uh, huge companies usually have.
1: So I'm curious to know, do you read marketing books? Are you an avid reader or do
0: you learn by doing? Oh, I love to read books, but I wouldn't say just say marketing books. So for me, uh, standard reading is something like, uh, I love to read Malcolm Gladwell. I also like to read articles in marketing. So... uh, A lot of articles, which I've remembered from eternity, I've kept them with me and they're classics. Uh, I also read books about uh, people who have done well in business. So this could be somebody like a Steve Jobs to a Sam Walton, to even uh, Iapokasu, which is one of the first books I've read, uh, to books on even, I've done Theory of Constraints with the LIU Gold So I don't know if you've heard about The Goal, uh, which is a book uh, which is very interesting. So it's about also learning about principles across different parts of the business, and then applying them to marketing somewhere. So it's been a mix of marketing and probably autobiography, biographies of good business leaders. And that's what my reading is all about.
1: And how do you decide what to read?
0: Uh, So that's a very uh, interesting thing because it could be just that my uh, Kindle uh, kind of suggests some books and that's happened with, uh, I read the autobiography of Shaquille O'Neal that way. And I really, one of the better books I've read. And some of them could be that because I found a particular business, like Tesla is something I was very interested about. So I read about them. Alibaba, so I read the Jack Ma book. So it's a mix of you going into the market and seeing some products you want to know how did they set up. And it's a mix of some things which obviously get suggested to you by good algorithms and echo chambers.
1: So I'm curious to know what are the lessons you learned from the Shaquille O'Neal book that you can pass on to an audience of marketing people interested in innovation?
0: Oh, he's a brilliant marketer. So in Shaquille O'Neal, the beauty of it is people see him generally as this large... uh, celebrity slash football or oh sorry basketball player who's done really well, uh who has actually built up images or imagery of his brands through what he did as a player. But actually if you take two steps back and you see he had a strategy to everything. The whole story about how he set up his own line and he has this story about where he says uh he went to Walmart and he figured out that that's why he buys his products that right? he's got the love for Walmart. And he figured that the products he sold, and which is I think his deal with if I remember was it Nike? No Reebok, sorry. it's a Reebok. And uh, uh, he wasn't happy that a mother couldn't afford the product he bought. And therefore, he went for a line which is cheaper, which is his own line of products. Uh, now, if you come to think of it and read about it, you might think, oh, that came from the heart. But there was a very strong business case behind it. He realized there's this whole value at the bottom of the pyramid. Right? So the moment, and he's lived there, he's come from there. And I think a lot of us have come from there. Where we've been middle-class or low-middle-class families and come up. And he saw the value and he realized, let me launch brands in this section. Uh, and if you see even his business acumen, he has been at the forefront of investing in labels, investing in companies before they came in. So there's obviously a very short businessman there who has also created this aura, which kind of also promotes business. So it's it's like, how do I say, like a uh, the Tesla guy. So if you, some of the people today have the ability to send a tweet, like Elon an Musk tweet can cause the, a jump in. Uh, cyber currency or whatever digital currency. Similarly, the power of Shakiloni is not only does he find value in businesses, which nobody else does, the point is, as soon as he touches a business, that also automatically generates values which other businesses won't have. So it's a mix of his acumen and his ability to make businesses bigger.
1: I read an article very recently that talked about the idea that the next trillion dollar brand could be an an influencer brand. i think that i might have this completely wrong but uh, rihanna released a lingerie range or at least a fashion range very recently and like it was instantly worth like you know a billion and you can see this happen a lot like snoop dogg launched some gin launched a range of nfts you know do you think that the, the future of big brands will be brands created by individuals or influencers
0: oh definitely so I worked uh, in this company, the House of Anita Dunaric company, where we were owned by General Atlantic, which is a private equity company. And they had just invested in Huda. Huda is a beauty influencer-based brand. And the entire marketing of the brand is based on this person who had set up her own influencer channel. And slowly she began promoting brands. And it's very interesting because uh, the infrastructure such, and I've worked in Apparel, but I've seen there are companies around the world. And these are French companies. These are companies with manufacturing in China, Singapore, etc which can create any product for you. So an influencer with a certain amount of following and with certain ethos and certain ethics or certain way of how she wants to promote a brand can get these manufacturers to promote anything and everything she wants. Uh, so it's a bit like the private label scenario where the manufacturers are all the same for the big brands and the private labels in many cases. But these people bring about a really valued following and they show practical applications of the product. Right? So some of these beauty influencers show you how to use a product. So they're this brand I remember called Huda Beauty. Uh, which was invested by General Atlantic and that's the same company which invested in the company I was working at that part of the time. And the entire brand was created on the ethos of an influencer. She had a certain following, she promoted products and people completely believed her. Uh, and she, I know there was a certain, in fact, an eyeshadow color which she promoted which was specific to her offering. Uh, but the beauty of this whole infrastructure is that these influencers today in the way of working don't need to set up their own company. There are companies, dedicated companies and uh, I know there was a fr- French company I had worked with for uh, getting products for a certain brand I was doing work with on perfumes, et cetera. There are brands which manufacture out of China, Singapore, Taiwan, and these guys can take your brand image and create any product for you out of nowhere. There's no worry on scale. There's no worry on manufacturing capability. They even support you on se- selling. They even support you on everything else. So the future is these influencers. And honestly, if you have the capability to, uh, Get so many people to talk about you, uh, get so many people to follow what you do, that probably is going to be far more powerful than anything else. And that's it. Uh, in fact, just today morning, I was reading about the Italian Kardashians, and there are these uh, three women in Italy, uh, sisters, who now promote most of the big brands in Europe. And so, if you see between the Kardashians, between them, between the Huda brand, influencers do decide a lot of what we buy. And when we, so when I sold apparel, we used to ask uh, young girls, right, how do you choose a particular dress? How do you choose a particular makeup brand? And nine out of 10 of them used to talk to influencers or used to uh, interact with influencer videos. And that's where they got their knowledge. So that's where all the power is. So I'd like to move on to
1: your top marketing tip. I was ask guests, what is their top marketing tip? What is that silver so bullet bit of advice you find yourself sharing most often?
0: Yeah, so one big tip I got, and it's not so much marketing as much as planning of marketing, uh, was about uh, always planning your source of growth. And this is something called a SOGA analysis. And it's common in PNG, I think, in also we do it. Uh, and there's something called the MAX model. So sorry to bring a lot of acronyms here. But basically SOGA is the source of growth analysis, which is where you plan where your growth comes from. Uh, one of the biggest issues in marketing per se is sometimes we get lost in the product and the story of the product, but we don't see where will the business come from. And what source of growth analysis does is it basically predicts or tries to plan where exactly will your business come. And uh, this then is decided by something called the max model. The max model is something I learned as a young marketer.
1: Sorry, sorry Pranay. What's that? I'm, I'm not quite catching that word. The max model. M-A-X.
0: Max model. Thank you. Yeah. So the max model, and I'll explain what it is. The max model is more from, M is more from existing consumer. A is attract from competition. And X is expand the category. So a brand can basically gain gain value from three steps. They can get more from an existing consumer. So that's where you get your consumer to buy more, which means you uh, incentivize him or to get more products, incentivize him or to probably have more trials, etc. The second is attract from competition, which is where you kind of... uh, Try to gain share from your competition, which means you look at what weaknesses are there in their portfolio. And the third is expand the category, which is basically expand the category. And This is more true for uh, brands which are leaders in their market, where they have to expand the category. Otherwise, the category will not show any growth. And the most interesting part about this is uh, the maximum cost for acquisition is at the bottom, which is expand the category. So think of it as a pyramid. So when you expand the category, you have to spend the most amount of money to get people. Uh, whereas when you have to attract from competition, it's a lesser amount of money because the consumer already has bought into the category. Uh, he or she is just switching. And the first, which is the more from existing consumer, is the cheapest because basically, you already have a consumer inside uh, your portfolio. You just kind of incentivize the consumer to buy. them. So this way of looking at a, a brand portfolio and looking at how you attract competition or attract new consumers completely changed the way I started marketing because then every time I spent a dollar of money, I would look at what am I spending on, uh, which also, also is also very critically dependent on loyalty. When you realize the fact that it is cheaper to get business from your existing consumer, you then build your levers of loyalty. You build your CRM and this is kind of which marketing is based on the more loyal consumers you get, the better your brand. Does. So that's a big learning I had. And for somebody who I was always one of those who believed in great ads in great products and great insights. For me to think about marketing as logically and as scientifically like this uh, suddenly changed the way I think and suddenly also changed the way I prioritise marketing spends. So that's the one silver bullet, I would say.
1: This episode of the Shiny New Object podcast is brought to you in partnership with MadFest. So, now we're going to move on to your shiny new object.
0: And your shiny new object is. Uh, so, it's about advertising in the cookie world. Yeah. So, this, I think, is going to be the shiny new object for the entire uh, universe of marketing today. Uh, so, I do know, I do hope, I think you obviously know the fact that Google and Apple are soon going to drop cookies. Uh, we will not be able to track people. A uh, lot of this is also largely due to the, the controversies of Cambridge Analytica and so on and so forth where people were not happy that they were being tracked, people are not happy about stuff happening. Uh, But we are in a strange world where while people say they don't want to be tracked, there's also the other part where 74% of consumers actually say that they want to have a very personalized uh, environment of shopping, a personalized uh, way of advertising. So you're stuck between this rock and a hard place where at one point they don't want to be tracked, the second point, if you give them a generic uh, interface. They don't like it. Uh, so that's where we come into the world today of where we have to adapt to a cookless future. Uh, now, uh, to, I'll also have to explain how cookies work. So cookies are generally based on third-party data. And to very simply put it is, when you go to a website, uh, there is a piece of code which tracks which website you have been on. Uh, once it tracks your behavior, your visits to multiple websites across different, different uh, uh, genres, they create a pattern about who you are uh, with enough analysis with enough uh, first party data. We soon know who the consumer is, right? So that's the third party data picture uh, to also clarify third party data. doesn't mean that they know your name. They don't know. They don't know your email address directly. It's all hash data. Nobody is referring you to you as a person Tom, but they're referring you to as probably XXYZ is a particular consumer who does this and has a certain behavior. So it's, it's clear and clean. But the future of tomorrow is that we won't even have this data. So then it makes it even more important that we need to have our own first-party data. And first-party data the holy grail, is that every website picks up data from consumers. Now, what happens is uh, consumers don't really go to a website unless they see some utility there. Uh, In companies like FMCG, where our sales, purchases, everything happens uh, through probably a third-party website or something like an Amazon or through chains like Targets and Tesco's and Walmart, there's no real way for us to attain this first-party data. So then that changes things. So now we need to give them uh, interfaces, we need to give them points of control wherein they come in, they provide us this first-party data, and that's going to completely change the game. So to also honestly bring, there's also another factor which we call today called zero-party data. And this is, in fact, even more interesting is exactly. that when you go to a website, you might see some websites will ask you, can I help you choose a product? And then they'll ask you 10 questions. Now, these 10 questions, while Nokia's harmless, actually help build the entire map of the consumer. And the more the consumers are able to answer these queries, the better will the experience uh, be for these consumers, and the better will be the quality of data that the marketer collects. So tomorrow, it is more and more critical that every company, and in fact, if you see most companies today, and we've all done that, have shifted our... Uh, our point of reference or the place where we used to inter- interact with consumers from websites to social media, to Instagram, we will have to come back to our websites. We'll have to come back to places where we can collect first-party zero-party data. And this is going to completely change the way we work. So I hope I'm not spoken too much in kind of get going.
1: No, not at all. So just for yeah. point of clarity, the difference between first-party data is like you would collect my email on your website, whereas zero-party data is I want to see information about these different things, A, B, C, D, E, but you're not collecting my actual data at that point.
0: No, so it could be both. So in first party data, what happens is you come and probably log in for an email uh, newsletter, right? So that could be first party data. In zero party data, it's also about you not only giving that information, but probably be asking you a question and say, hey, can I help you choose your beauty cream? So if you can tell me these five questions, so it is the consumer coming on his own, entering the data compared to this. That's the difference between a zero party and a first party data. The
1: line is pretty thin, to be honest. Yeah, I was going to say that it feels very similar to me. But So the zero-party data will become first-party data if it was then attached to a, some kind of form of contact, like a, a phone number or email or so on. So there's going to be this move, in your view, from, from Instagram, from third-party sites to to more entertaining experiences on brands' own websites? Is that, uh, that and that kind of felt like what the internet was like when I started working in it about sort of 15 years ago, where it was all about creating branded experiences on a site, you know, it's microsite, Flash, it was all about this incredible experience on, you know, on a dot-com or, or a microsite. Is that what you're seeing or are we going to see a, a, a different kind of future to collect this first and zero-party data? Yeah, so that
0: is the biggest struggle we are facing. So that the beauty is so remember 10 years back, right? We used to work on our websites. We did these amazing websites where people would come, engage. And then we realized that people came into Facebook much easier and they did all this much easier. So we are going to reach a position in life. And actually Facebook kind of helps somewhere in these things where either we'll have to create our own website, which means going back to the world of having websites, uh, doing SEO, SCN, getting people to our site, or we'll have to build new relationships with the Instagrams, and the Facebooks of the world where they help us to collect this first-party and zero-party data uh, without cookies. So now, what was initially done through websites could possibly be done through a social media uh, interface. Uh, Facebook does allow some of that already. Uh, but it will completely change the way we think, where instead of outsourcing what we stood, so what we did recently, we outsourced all of this uh, segmentation thinking to the Facebooks and the Googles of the world. We will have to go back one step, start collecting this data, Either through our own website or through Facebook, et cetera. And that's gonna be trickier and tougher every
1: time. So how is it gonna work for Facebook's largest client, which as I'm I'm told is is lots of very small clients, you know, small businesses that wanna target people in a certain area that I think um makes up about eight percent of their revenue as as I'm told. That you know, they, these guys aren't gonna be able to create a meaningful website experience like seo probably be completely beyond them so how does how does that ver- version of the future uh, work for small businesses which is arguably where the money is
0: yeah so it'll be much more difficult but that's where the zero party comes up, right so wherein when a uh, facebook could give a consumer an option of entering in and saying i can share abc pieces of information so therefore uh, when they go onto facebook they are targeted only by ads uh, for the particular location they are so instead of cookies, following the consumer and trying to build an image of the consumer, uh, in zero party, it's the consumer that's saying, hey, I'm ready to share A, B, C pieces of information if you can give me a better interface. And that's going to be where the part comes in. And you're right in that what will happen is the mom and pop store who completely defend, depended on Facebook to do the advertising, assuming that Facebook catches the right consumer in the right location, et cetera, is going to find it much tougher. But then within those parameters, the also the part is that uh, the power of Facebook for to marketers, which is where Facebook knew all about the consumer, is also going to go down. So it's going to be a balance where you may have paid, let's say, hundred dollars through Facebook for a campaign which ran in a particular place because you couldn't. Nobody else had the power of Facebook. You might be able to take a step back and be able to do this with a much lower spend, maybe less targeting, and still get the same impact. So it's going to be a mix. Uh, and honestly speaking, uh, how do I say? The real targeting information or the stuff that we did from Facebook was about finding segments such as um, whether this person was a trendy user of electronics. I'm just giving a very bad example. And this was higher level segmentation, which is done by looking at his, her behavior across many websites. For the mom and pop store, it doesn't matter. For the mom and pop store, it's still about the first party information, which is, I want to target all people who live in certain location. And that location will still be allowed because nothing in cookies has got anything to do with that particular part of advertising. So cookies never played a part in those advertising in any case. So that should not affect their life.
1: Well, I'm thinking more of a, a business that you know isn't necessarily geographically based. Yeah. Like you know, you could set up a clothing company. What a strange idea. But yeah, we want to target you know, people who are interested in this type of fashion that we're in, and then that ceases to become available. Like, does that create a problem? Well, yes, it does create a problem, but what do you think are the solutions to that?
0: Oh, it does create a problem. So then the future could be possibly alliances between brands where you have, I don't know, you call it the apparel alliance, which is about consumers going to a certain website, like, you know, the loyalty clubs, which used to be there at some point of time and providing the information for certain incentives in return. uh, And then that information is legally allowed to be traded with these companies who can advertise But so that, so you're getting it, right? So cookies are not allowed, but you are allowed as a consumer to still go to a place, given your information and allow targeted advertising. So then it will be the value of the targeted advertising. So if I, as a consumer, uh, go to a, so there will be certain platforms like loyalty programs, wherein you can go and provide your information. In return for this information, the loyalty program will give you, let's say, I'm just giving you bad this, but 5% discount across all the uh, companies who are part of my loyalty program. In return for this 5% which this company gives, all these uh, companies who are part of the loyalty program also get a way to know more about the consumer. So you will see aggregated loyalty program systems. You will see aggregated marketing programs. So that's what's going to happen. Wherein, uh, no longer will you be able to observe a consumer without his her consent, which is what cookies did in some cases. But you will be able to take their consent and ask them, can I market you XYZ products? In return for these products, I will give you probably one or two incentives and give you a better shopping experience. That's how we would have to go.
1: Well, I'm very much looking forward to seeing how this plays out. And Pranay, thank you for going into such detail, but also explaining it to to a a wide range of different audiences for this show. And I appreciate that, but we're going to have to wrap up the podcast now. So if someone wants to get in touch with you, where would you like them to do that? And how would you like them to do that? What makes a good outreach message to you?
0: Yes, you can reach out. So on LinkedIn, actually reach out to me at any point and I'm always available. Uh, I used to give out my email address, but then there's too much spam coming in. But anytime you want to reach out on LinkedIn, I'm there available. Uh, I do. I am part of some forums, et cetera. I can't really, I don't even know whether people know this forum. So that's the point there. Uh, and you can reach out to me at any point. And I'm always open to discussions on new marketing, new ways. I, I'd love to catch up with people. Yeah.
1: And what makes a good message? Like what's a, a really good open for you? Oh, that's
0: a good one. Messages I've reacted to usually are stuff like uh, if there's something they can uh, discuss about new technologies, new marketing, uh, if they want to understand something about, let's say, stuff that we are doing, which would help them, or it's more about the marketing, how to say, the marketing uh, knowledge stuff. Then that really makes for an interesting discussion. And I've spoken to many people across the world on that.
1: Fantastic. That's a great bit of advice. And Brian, I thank you so much for your time.
0: Anytime, Tom. Thanks for your time too. Hi. Just
1: before you go, I'd really appreciate it if you could take the time to write a review of the shiny new object podcast on Apple podcasts or iTunes, whatever it's called these days, or whichever podcast provider you use. We're an indie podcast, so it would go a long way for us if you could just share the word and, give us a bit of a support on those channels. That would just be fantastic. If you haven't got time, that's also cool. And yeah, if you could tell your colleagues about the podcast and also if possible, don't forget to subscribe. And I'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, If you'd like to speak on the podcast or be a guest or you think I'm asking the wrong questions, anything, I'd be super interested to hear what you think. So please email me at tom at automatedcreative.net. That's T-O-M at, I'm not going to bother spelling it. Anyway, you'll work it out. Thanks so much.